Hello, welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. First, an announcement. If you are enjoying these podcasts and would like to give a review or a rating, that would be very useful. It would help extend their reach. This episode is the fourth in the series on technology and consciousness. And today's episode firstly examines the broad changes in social and cultural epochs with technology as a major determinant. Secondly, we examine the views of Carl Jung on technology and modern life. His intuitions of a century ago will take us to the very edge of major dilemmas of the modern age. So let us begin by examining the cultural context of change. A number of broad phases that underlie social and cultural movements are frequently mentioned by social theorists. These are the traditional, the modern and the postmodern orders or epochs. I wish to add to these the posthuman, the period we are now potentially entering. The traditional order is where identity resides in collective values, for example those of family, tribe, church or class. Examples, the Middle Ages, or emerging economies such as Ireland pre-1950, which was predominantly agricultural, had a mindset dominated by the Catholic Church and family relationships, had a very low standard of living and had little access to modern energy or technological resources, such as electricity or advanced infrastructure. Clearly, many countries are in a transitional state between the traditional and modern orders. For example, India or Nigeria. Understanding the dynamics of this transition, for example, where a country is located on this spectrum, the speed and disruption of its transition, is vital to understanding the collective mindset, the tensions and conflicts of a country. Few can escape these dynamics. A rather different form of social psychology exists in theocracies, that is, those states where central rule is derived from a divine source. Modern examples would include the state of Iran, which is a combination of the traditional and modern orders. The modern order I have split into two pathways. One is that of dictatorship. Autocracy is a system of government in which state power is in the hands of one person. Plutocracy is where it is in the hands of a small group, the few. Decisions of the central power in these cases have no external legal constraints and neither is there control or power from the people, or rather the subjects. In modern times, examples include the fascist regimes of the 1930s and 40s, Japan, Germany, Spain and Italy to a lesser extent, the Soviet Union post-1917, the Chinese state post-1949. Almost all of these states have embraced the technologies of modernity for both military and economic purposes. The mindset of those living under such regimes is very different to that of democracies. The value of individuality, for example, has low importance. The Chinese population alone constitutes almost a fifth of humanity. And just this example shows the importance of this category of the modern non-democratic state 
strongly allied to technological and economic advancement and hostile to the supposed democratic values of the West. The second major pathway of modernity refers to those countries whose institutions, beliefs and values relate to a scientific, rational and secular order that has core beliefs in progress, science, reason, technology, individual rights, democracies and freedoms. Here the conceptions of self-identity have their origins in the social and political revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries and in the reorganisations of thought in the Enlightenment and Romantic movements. For the rest of this episode, references to modernity will be to Western modernity. This is not to underestimate the other pathway, but the later developments of the postmodern and now the posthuman have emerged chiefly out of the dilemmas of Western modernity. A central belief of the modern order is in the autonomous individual with the right for self-expression and fulfilment. Modernity contrasts with a traditional order where the individual stands not alone but within a belief and support system guaranteed by tradition, for example religion, and extended family and social structure. The agendas of modernity include those of freedom and individual fulfilment, which involve emancipation from the restrictive and repressive orders of tradition. The notion of individuality does not have the same significance or importance in any traditional or autocratic order as it does in modern Western consciousness. Examples of the modern order include those of Western Europe and America, Australia and New Zealand. In fact, those countries where the majority of listeners to these podcasts actually live. However, all has not been well in the modern consciousness in the West. Core ingredients of modernity, for example beliefs in science, progress, reason and the autonomous individual, have been severely questioned. The postmodern period is characterised by radical doubt and once-trusted certitudes become replaced by complex dilemmas. Here, in the postmodern, the individual stands alone and faith in the Enlightenment project fades. Science no longer is synonymous with progress, but rather with risk. A secular consciousness may crave the security of a moral and value system not provided for by modernism. The impact of individualism does not stop at the demise of the extended family with the supposed stability of tradition it offered. But this diminution or demise extends into the heart of the nuclear family as emancipatory agendas no longer tolerate traditional roles. However, modern consciousness, while providing emancipation, does not provide deep meaning for the self. It does not provide it with security, connection to something larger, nor a coherent value system. The individual may be emancipated, but dreadfully alone. It has frequently been remarked that the forms of mental disturbance have changed over the last 150 years. Freud, for example, treated hysteria, a condition understandable within the context of a sexually repressive 19th century traditional order. Modern disturbances 
are those not related to repression, but rather to loss or a damaged self. For example, depression, narcissism, borderline disorders, addiction. These pathologies of the modern self represent not only the fractured families that directly give rise to them, but also the problems existing in the collective, that is, in society at large. Postmodern, then, refers to a reaction to modernity, a questioning of the ultimate results of social progress and a questioning of the validity of science and technology, which, nevertheless, do not for a moment cease their advancement in continual inventions, innovations that revolutionise economies and social structures. Emotions accompanying the postmodern include confusion, emptiness, boredom, alienation, disillusion, despair, but also at times the opposite, intoxication, celebration and a feeling of freedom. Frosch, in a 1991 publication called Identity Crisis, Modernity, Psychoanalysis and the Self, refers to excitement and fear of great instability in a rapidly changing order and being perpetually confronted by plurality and newness. He comments that the postmodern self is characterised by uncertainty, rapidity of change and kaleidoscopic juxtaposition of objects, people and events. Finding our uncertain way through these uncertainties is a prime task for contemporary existence. Unquote. Other writers have talked of the empty and saturated self. Cushman, in a 1990 publication called Why the Self is Empty, published in the American Psychologist, Volume 45, comments that the self in the West, quote, experiences a significant absence of community, tradition and shared meaning. It experiences these social absences and their consequences interiorly as a lack of personal conviction and worth. And it embodies the absences as a chronic, undifferentiated emotional hunger and thus yearns to acquire and consume as an unconscious way of compensation for what is lost. It is empty. Unquote. Words that we shall see are very like Young's back in the 1920s. Gergen, in a publication 1991 again called The Saturated Self, Dilemmas of Identity in Contemporary Life, comments, The technologies of social saturation are central to the contemporary erasure of individual self. There is a populating of the self reflecting the infusion of partial identities through social saturation. One begins to experience the vertigo of unlimited multiplicity. Unquote. One thinks in today's world of social networking and social media. Gergen's postmodern self, therefore, has introjective overload and rapidly changing identifications and disidentifications. By implication, the inner self is highly unstable. The reflexive project of the self refers to the quote, process whereby self-identity 
is constituted by the reflexive ordering of self-narratives. These are the words of Giddens, also in a 1991 publication of his book, Modernity and Self-Identity. Now, the adjective reflexive indicates the inwards-looking nature of this reflection, that is, towards the self, as it were, reshaping itself through its ongoing narrative. Giddens believes that the modern age is not especially more anxiety-prone than previous ones. Its anxieties are, however, different. In particular, self-identity is linked to the extreme change in modern institutions, for example, those of the family and of work. Instead of self-identity therefore being culturally given, it has to be continually reshaped. That is, it is a reflexive exercise. Giddens comments, quote, The reflexivity of modernity extends into the core of the self. In the context of the post-traditional order, the self becomes a reflexive project. And in the setting of modernity, by contrast, the altered self has to be explored and constructed as part of a reflexive process of connecting personal and social change, the adaption of the inner world to outer change. At the centre of the transition from the traditional to the modern order are changes in technology, the economy and social structure, all of which stemmed from the scientific enlightenment and the subsequent industrial revolution. The movement to the postmodern came in the second half of the 20th century, exactly at the time of the fastest acceleration of standards of living, which has also spread to many emerging economies. The potential next transition in our own times is a result of another technological acceleration into an age of artificial intelligence, deep computerization, and a fusion of technologies. Technology, material changes in economies and scientific advance, are producing very large changes in social psychology and the system of ideas, the ideological superstructure, for the lack of a better phrase. By way of contrast to the social theories just sketched, I wish to turn to the anti-tech stance of Carl Jung, the founder of analytical psychology. In his book, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, he gives us his views on this subject. The following quotations are taken from the chapter called The Tower, which was the very low-tech building he created and partially lived in by Lake Zurich. Quote, We are very far from having finished completely with the Middle Ages, classical antiquity and primitivity as our modern psyches pretend. Nevertheless, we have plunged down the cataract of progress, which sweeps on into the future with ever wilder violence, the farther it takes us from our roots. Once the past has been breached, it is usually annihilated, and there is no stopping the forward motion. But it is precisely the loss of connection with the past our uprootedness, which has given rise to the discontents of civilization, and to such a flurry and haste that we live more in the future 
and its chimerical promises of a golden age than in the present, with which our whole evolutionary background has not yet caught up. We rush impetuously into novelty, driven by a mounting sense of insufficiency, dissatisfaction and restlessness. We no longer live on what we have, but on promises, no longer in the light of the present day, but in the darkness of the future, which we expect will at last bring the proper sunrise. We refuse to recognise that everything better is purchased at the price of something worse. That, for example, the hope of greater freedom is cancelled out by increased enslavement to the state. Not to speak of the terrible perils to which the most brilliant discoveries of science expose us. The less we understand of what our fathers and forefathers sought, the less we understand ourselves, and thus we help with all our might to rob the individual of his roots and his guiding instincts, so that he becomes a particle in the mass, ruled only by what Nietzsche calls the spirit of gravity. He continues, Reforms by advances, that is, by new methods or gadgets, are of course impressive at first. But in the long run they are dubious, and in any case, dearly paid for. They by no means increase the contentment or happiness of the people on the whole, Mostly they are deceptive sweetenings of existence, like speedier communications, which unpleasantly accelerate the tempo of life and leave us with less time than ever before. Omnis festinatio ex parte diaboli est. Young loved his Latin phrases, and that translated means all haste is of the devil. In this book, he continues, I have devoted considerable space to my subjective view of the world, which, however, is not a product of rational thinking. It is rather a vision such as will come to one who undertakes deliberately, with half-closed eyes and somewhat closed ears, to see and hear the form and voice of being. If our impressions are too distinct and we are held to the hour and minute of the present, and have no way of knowing how our ancestral psyches listen to and understand the present, in other words, how our unconscious is responding to it, then we remain ignorant of whether our ancestral components find an elementary gratification in our lives, or whether they are repelled. Inner peace or contentment depend in large measure, upon whether or not the historical family, which is inherent in the individual, can be harmonised with the ephemeral conditions of the present. In other words, if we live too much in the present, we forget our ancestral past. It's as if Young is trying to answer to the spirits of the past, to find an answer to their struggles and strivings. He is not just addressing the people of the contemporary world. He even wants to address the dead. I don't think I've ever heard a more traditional statement. He continues, In the tower at Bollingen, it is as if we lived in many centuries simultaneously. The place will outlive me, and in its location and style it points backwards to things of long ago. 
there is very little about it to suggest a present. If a man of the 16th century were to move into the house, only the kerosene lamp and the matches would be new to him. Otherwise he would know his way about without difficulty. There is nothing to disturb the dead. Neither electric light nor telephone. Moreover, my ancestors' souls are sustained by the atmosphere of the house, since I answer for them the questions that their lives once left behind. I carve out rough answers as best I can. I've even drawn them on the walls. It is as if a silent greater family, stretching down the centuries, were peopling the house. There I live in my second personality and see life in the round and something forever coming into being and passing on. Some comments. Young is acutely aware of our deep connection to the past, even to ancient history and our primitive past. And how modernisation and by implication technology have uprooted us and caused the Quote, discontents of civilizations, unquote. That our compulsive living in the future is an illusion and is based on our feelings of dissatisfaction and insufficiency with ourselves. He points to the contradictions of modern technology, how they speed things up but give us less time. He feels progress and technological change divorce us from our roots and has an unstoppable and violent force of its own. We ignore the high price to pay for this modernity, how supposed freedom leads to new enslavement to the state, and how some of the technologies unleash terrible dangers on the world, no doubt referring to the atom bomb. He continues, technologies do not bring greater happiness, but instead have a diabolic quality to them. Instead, Young has constructed his tower, where, like a Taoist, he consults with his ancestors and the spirits of the dead. He leaves technologies aside and deliberately wants his house to belong to past centuries, where the spirits will not be alienated by the gadgets of the present. In just a few paragraphs, Young has a serious implied critique of modernisation and its technologies. Finally, I wish to turn to Young's visit to an African home, mentioned again in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, in the chapter on his travels. In 1925, Young visited Kenya, and as ever, he was keen to meet people who represented the traditions of the country. In such encounters, he had a very sharp eye for the archetypal background. In Kenya, he was invited to an African home by the son of a family which consisted of a mother, children and an absent husband. He comments, I had the feeling that the confidence and self-assurance of the mother were founded to a great extent upon her identity with her own wholeness. Her private world made up of children, house, small livestock, shamba and last but not least, a not unattractive physique. The husband was referred to only in an elusive way. It seemed he was sometimes here, sometimes not here. At the moment he was staying in some unknown place. 
My hostess was plainly and unproblematically the embodiment of stability, a veritable pied de terre for the husband. The question did not seem to be whether or not he was there, but rather she was present in her wholeness, providing a geomagnetic centre for the husband who wandered over the land with his herds. I ask myself whether the growing masculinization of the white woman is not connected with the loss of her natural wholeness, whether it is not a compensation for her impoverishment, and whether the feminising of the white man is not a further consequence. The more rational the polity, the more blurred is the difference between the sexes. The role homosexuality plays in modern society is enormous. It is partly the consequence of the mother complex, partly a purposive phenomenon. And then in brackets he puts, prevention of reproduction, close brackets, unquote. Comments. Here one notes Young's conservatism with regard to gender relationships. At the same time, there is a very positive evaluation of the central role of the mother and her natural wholeness. One senses that behind that, he sees an archetypal role for the woman-mother as the geomagnetic centre of the family and husband. Young is clearly impressed by her. But for the purpose of these podcasts, there are further reflections of his that are of great interest. As ever in his travels, whenever he sees the archetypal in other cultures, he contrasts this with the absence and loss of it in Western civilization. After all, his life work was to identify and heal this wound in Western culture, its loss of myth and soul. If you refer to an earlier podcast, Season 2, Episode 7, Young Part 2, I give other examples of this from his travels. Remember that, in this case, Young is visiting this family in the Elanyi tribe in 1926, almost a hundred years ago. He contrasts their traditional lifestyle and gender relations with the modern Europeans. He feels that the modern white woman, presumably therefore extending to America, has lost her wholeness and her growing masculinization is a compensation for her impoverishment. A strong word. The white man, by way of complementarity, has become more feminized. Young sees this as an inevitable development of more rational societies. As it were, an erasing of the gender differences, one of the prices of civilization to be paid. In general, the problem of homosexuality has become enormous, he observes. So, Young is seeing a breakdown of gender relations and an erasure of gender and sexual differences in roles in the Western world 100 years ago. Typical of Young, he next moves to question why this should be the case. He is very aware from analysis of individual clients that the mother complex plays a large role in matters of homosexuality. But he is not satisfied with this as the sole explanation. He is sensing some movement in the collective psychological structure towards something in the future. A hidden, unconscious direction. A purposive phenomena, as he calls it. And his answer to this question is that this represents a collective movement to the prevention of reproduction. An extraordinary intuition. 
that takes us forward this 100 years right up to the present. Young's intuitions could well be called prophecies. Today, Homo sapiens is becoming rapidly fused with technologies which are not outside of us, but are entering deeply into our bodies, our genes and our inner world. They are actually changing human nature. The movement today towards transgender, non-binary, post-gender and so on is the prelude to a new order which we are entering into with an accelerating speed. For the modern world, this is not frightening in the least, for it is so entranced, duped and captured by technology that it scarcely has the capacity to even question what is happening. In our next episode, I examine a post-human disorder.